Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And while you're there, check out our new guide to our visiting our home in Crested Butte and the rest of the Gunnison Valley. It's got everything you need to know about getting here, lodging, the excellent public transit in the area, and more. We've got a link in the show notes, so give that a look and come pay us a visit. Okay, in early 2020, when COVID lockdown started, a lot of people had some big ideas for how they'd spend all the extra time at home. Not only did most of those grand plans not happen, though, but not many of them were as ambitious as starting a bike company. Mick Williams did just that, and as you'll hear in this super interesting conversation, he's got a ton of big ideas for the bike world, both in the realm of bike tech and regarding the state of privateer racing. We get into all that and more in this one, so let's dive right in. Well, Mick, thanks for coming on and great to be here chatting with you. How are you today and where are you today? Thanks, dude. No, I'm uh, yeah, big fan of, of what you're doing and yeah, I really appreciate you inviting me on. So, um, yeah, I'm based here in Australia. So, uh, WIP is based, uh, it's headquartered in Geelong, um, which is about an hour south of Melbourne. Um, and yeah, we make, make custom bike products. Just try to make some cool shit. Yeah, I think fair to say that you're you're doing that. And we'll get into some of the more specific products and projects you have going on in a little bit here. But I think it's fair to say that WRP is kind of one of the more interesting companies out there in the bike space, just making some uh, some more out there products that you don't see from a lot of the bigger companies. And so part of what I'd love to hear a little more about before we get into the specifics of the products is just what's your background and how did you start this whole project yeah it's uh thanks for thanks for the words um i i think it's kind of hard for me to look at the company objectively like as a third person because i'm in it so you know i was thinking about this this morning when i was having breakfast i'm like i i wonder how people see wrp because like i know how i see it because you know founder owner and only employee at the moment but um you know i know how i see it but i'm so entrenched in it in just the mechanics of it that i sometimes i wonder how it looks from the outside but um i think yeah you've got it pretty accurate that we make some some pretty wild stuff but i guess from my side of it to answer your question like i've kind of come at it with no specific agenda you know i haven't even come come about it to try to necessarily make money off it i um you know i'm just trying to make products that that'll make people faster or more comfortable or, you know, go higher or, or whatever. Um, I don't really have an objective or an agenda sort of behind it. So, um, to give sort of my background, so I'm an, an engineer by profession. So, and I've also raced bikes sort of forever. So, I started uh, racing BMX. I was just a BMX guy up until pretty late in life, really, like, um, I don't know what, it, what, it, what I would have been, 22 or 23. I never touched a mountain bike before. Um, and then finished uni, took a year off just to kind of do the, the whole graduate engineer thing and, and work and try to save money. And in that time, I bought a mountain bike. And then a year later, funnily enough, I did a couple of mountain bike races and then found myself sort of on the downhill World Cup series, which is was 2018. So, I did that 2018, 2019, and I just planned on, you know, giving the racing thing a crack while I was young. Um, and I was still working as an engineer, of course, just doing doing that stuff as a privateer. And then when the COVID thing came around, there was sort of no racing and I, and I had a couple of ideas kind of in the back of my brain. So, sort of right at the start of COVID, I made, uh, I made a set of dropouts um, and then I made a yoke for one of my friends, and literally just so I wasn't pissing off my uh off my just my friends on on my personal social media account, I just started a Williams Racing Products account just to to put that stuff somewhere and then it sort of started to get a little bit of traction and, you know, people started asking me for more parts and then, you know, people like yourself started following me and then it just kinda of built and built and built. Um, and I guess I was fortunate enough. One, I was like, as weird as it sounds, I was fortunate that we weren't racing because, um, you know, it would have been a, a tough decision to to park WIP and go racing or, you know, or vice versa. But, yeah, uh, that kind of gives the, the summary. So, I guess I come at it from, from a racer's perspective. Um, you know, I'm sort of through and through 
privateer guy from Aussie who's spent a shitload of money going <laughs> going racing. And I'm not just saying mountain bikes, like, you know, just racing in general. I just, I love riding my bike. So, uh, there is no agenda to sell a part unless it has some type of benefit for your riding, whether that's the speed or comfort or, you know, whatever. I love that. And to answer your sort of earlier question about just how people see WRP, I mean, from my vantage, it just seems like you're kind of a guy with some real fabrication, machining, engineering skills, and just a real willingness to make whatever cool idea happens to float along that would be useful to someone. And I think that's great. I'm really stoked to see someone out there just making those random oddball products for for things and uh yeah i mean i i'd be the first to say i don't think i have any any uh any great skill or whatever i'm certainly obsessed with bikes put it that way um you know i'll i'll, I'll sit here all night and stare at the bike and just i don't know dream up stupid ideas but um yeah i've, I've been fortunate enough to um to be around some people who are who are really skilled at at stuff um you know, say with Trinity, um, the two boys that are involved with Trinity are, are really skilled at their craft. So Nigel's, um, who's engineered to slide, like he's an awesome fabricator. Chase is a fantastic designer and, and kinematic guy. So, um, you know, I want to start off by saying I'm, I don't think I'm necessarily that, while I've got an engineering engineering background, I don't think I'm that sort of skilled. I'm just, uh, I'm obsessed and, and I like communicating with people that are also kind of skilled in their craft. And I think that's... Um, and and whether that be writers too, you know, writers skilled in their craft are saying, you know, this is what I need, and if if we can get uh, get the desired outcome, then that's good. We'll get a lot more into that uh, Trinity DH bike project that you touched on there in a, in a minute here, but before we get there, so is WRP essentially a full time project for you at this point, or are you kind of doing that on the side and have another job going? What's that part of the balance like? Yeah, for sure. So um happy to happy to answer it. And a lot of people I think, um, from what I've gathered kind of online, maybe maybe don't understand it. So like I've been going hard at this for only a little bit over sort of twelve months. Um so I am still in fully employed. Um, you know, so I'm an engineer. The people like my peers are probably gonna hear this and be like, Oh, you know, but um yeah, I'm still fully employed as an engineer with the government, so um, I'm doing that full time. So uh, it's a double-edged sword. While that kind of can hold some stuff back as far as time, uh, I guess it frees up the the monetary side of things basically because I don't want to limit uh, WRP's kind of um, trajectory. So every single cent that that WRP earns just go straight back into developing more products. And I think that that's kind of why we've been able to to build a lot of products sort of really quickly and, and whatnot because, um, yeah, I'm not taking anything from it. I mean, my my day job can can put food on the table, so to speak. So To that last point too, it doesn't totally surprise me that that has in some way sort of allowed you to make some genuinely cool, useful things, but products that you might not sell at the kind of volume that would sustain a company that was just based 100% on, you know, making a profit and feeding you and all that. And so that's just part of what I think is so fascinating about this whole whole enterprise. And we'll talk some more about a bunch of that in a minute here. But then to circle back to those kind of first dropouts and links that you were talking about, do I have it right that those were conversion parts to turn a couple of different 29er bikes into mullets? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So the, the first part that I ever that I ever made and sold was um, a set of mullet dropouts for a Supreme DH Common Style. Uh, basically, what spurred that on was that um, yeah, like I was saying, I was doing some racing in 2019, and uh, funnily enough, I was yeah, I was in uh, in your native country in the great the great USA, and uh, we raced snowshoe. Uh, me and a friend of mine, Jacko White, who is a racer out of Aussie, um, we raced Snowshoe, uh, World Cup, and then we were driving back across the country to race the US Open. And, like, we had a shitload of time to kill, obviously. So, we are just talking about stuff and, and whatnot. And Danny Hart had just won Snowshoe that year on a mullet. And da- as you know, Danny's not that tall. Um, 
And not just that Danny won snowshoe, but like there are a lot of people who were going real fast towards the end of that season on mullets. So, like there was obviously sort of something to it. And I think the other thing is too, like being in that environment, just kind of around the pits, you know, you, you just pick up on things that people say and, you know, teams and, and, and whatnot that, you know, sitting back here in Australia or looking through the internet, you might not see or hear. So, you know, we kind of knew the mullet thing was pretty had some traction um so jack and i were just talking for for 40 hours when we were driving back across the states and um you know we were talking about making bikes and all that type of stuff and i'd said like i had a 27 supreme at the time and i was like you know there's no reason why you couldn't make a set of dropouts uh to put a 26 on the back of my bike to keep the same geo and hence if you had a 29 you could put those same dropouts on the 29er and have 27 in the back. So, basically, as soon as I got home after that trip, like I, I modelled something up, uh, machined it up and like, yeah, worked straight off. So, that was that. And then, yeah, that kind of caught on caught on some traction. Um, but in all honesty, I didn't really see it going that far. I was like, oh, you know, it's just sort of one product. I had uh, – so, the Center Hub, what I released the other month – I had that in the background, like I've had that in the background for years and years and years, and never really knew how to how to uh, take it to fruition. So that's why, you know, I guess I always had sort of WIP sort of in the background there, but I, I didn't really know, you know, I knew I wasn't going to sell a heap of those dropouts. Had the hub kind of sitting there, and then, like, I posted a couple of things about that those dropouts, and literally, like, my my Instagram just kind of stagnated for a bit. I didn't know what I kind of wanted to do and it was just kind of training real hard because at that stage I didn't really know, like we didn't know how sort of serious COVID was. Um, and then the state of Victoria, which I mean kind of hit pretty hard mid last year. And at that time I was like, well, it's obvious we're not going racing. So um, I'll go real hard on some other products and that's how uh, I made another set of dropouts for my hardtail and then the yokes started coming through. Um, yeah, I made a yoke for my meta and then another friend of mine hit me up about a yoke for a specialised and then started making more and then and then it just kind of took off from there, I guess. Right. So, what bikes do you have yokes or dropouts for currently? Uh, currently, we've got yokes for – I'll start with the yokes. So, I've got specialised enduro, a stumpy Evo, and then for common sole, we've got – uh, a Meta TR, uh, Meta TR and AM for 2021s, and then another model for the TR and AMs for the 19s and 20s, and then we've got Meta Power yokes. Uh, I think that's all for the yokes, and then the dropouts. Uh, we've got um, we've got Common Soul Supreme, uh, Common Soul uh, for my hardtail, which you know sold bugger all of because that was that was literally just a project for me, but I'll make them for people if they want them. Um, but yeah, that, that kind of, that kind of wraps it up on, on that front. And so it sort of sounds like you've just been adding those as people have kind of had demand for them. Yeah, that's it. Like the, that's it. Like there are certainly, uh, others that I've had, uh, you know, ha- had people hit me up for, um, it's really just the, the time and the money to, um, to bring a new product to fruition. Um, so we've certainly got some others sort of in the works. Uh, you reeled off a couple of brands that of bikes that you're testing at the moment. So um, we've got a couple of parts, a couple of yokes on the way for a couple of those bikes. So um, I think the funny thing is that uh, by by the time it makes it to social media, I'm deep and deep and deep into R and D. You know, so um, yeah, there's some. Uh, yeah, it's funny. Social media probably, depending on the part, but it, it always lacks a, you know, lags a few months. So, yeah, we've got a couple more parts that uh, that we're ready to go with. You know, just haven't haven't gone public with them yet. Cool. Well, looking forward to seeing what's in the pipeline there. And in prepping for this episode, I was just thinking about this, and it sort of seems like these things come in waves almost that. I've been mountain biking for long enough and I'm old enough to remember back in the day when there was just a million little companies making all kinds of crazy machined and anodized this and that out of their out of garages all over the place. And then a lot of that sort of seemed like it died down through the last 10, 15 years. And uh, 
It almost feels like there's been a, a resurgence of it. And I was kind of kicking around the thought in the back of my head. Like, I wonder how many of these new companies that we're seeing popping up are people with a story not unlike yours where COVID hit and they were stuck inside and bored and all of a sudden had some time on their hands and went, huh, you know, I've, I've had this idea that I've been kicking around for the last five years. Like, hell, it's time to make it. And uh, I don't know if this, this thought's really going anywhere or not, but it, it honestly just feels like there's been a resurgence of little companies like WRP just making a few cool products that someone thought would be useful and they're sprouting up again, which is awesome. I'm all for it. For sure. I, I think it's a bit of a perfect storm in that regard, like in regards to the fact that I think the industry is at a point where you're right. I, I think that that custom type of stuff has started to come back in over the last couple of years um, after it had a bit of a hiatus. Um, and then to second that, obviously, you've got COVID, which I think has just sped it up a little bit. Um uh, because yeah, people are, people have got the time, but I I certainly think that that's the case. Um, I did a little piece on in Revolution Mountain Bike Mag about this a couple of months ago, but um, I certainly think that you know, and I like I could be totally off the mark here, and it's only it's only a small part, kind of in a multivariate equation of why, but um, I think one of the reasons is that say in the late nineties, early two thousands, when there was a lot of prototype stuff. Uh, the base level bikes were shit. You know, they, they were terrible. So you kind of had to make those proto parts uh, if you wanted to be competitive at all. Uh, and then, sort of late two thousands, and then and then certainly over the last say seven to eight years, um, like bikes have got so good because equipment so readily available. The prices come so down, like. Even in the last couple of years, the price has come down so much for a, a decent bike. Um, and I think half the reason that this custom stuff's come back in is because the base levels got that good that, you know, people start to look to the custom stuff again to kind of have a point of difference. Um, I could be totally off the mark there, but that's just that's just kind of what I think might be happening. I also like the note about prices, and I think you're totally right. I mean, you see internet comment sections complaining about prices at the top end stuff all the time. And it's certainly true that the fanciest, blingiest top of the line stuff is really expensive. But I think you're also absolutely spot on that the entry point that you need to spend to buy something these days that isn't that's good, that works well, has actually come down in a ton of cases because the more entry level to mid range stuff just works so so much better than it did not very long ago at all, and you don't you no longer need to be springing for the XTR and all the fanciest highest end stuff for it to be super functional these days. For sure, it's that um, you know it's that sort of filter down effect that you know the more money that's involved at the top end, the better the baseline gets. You know you could compare it to like F one. You know. There's way more money in F1 now than there was in the 80s, but look how good the base level cars are that the manufacturers are producing. And I think part of it too is that you've had over the last mm, five plus years, there's been this incremental evolution of bike geometry that's changed hugely in not a particularly long amount of time. But I do think that it is somewhat the case too that that is starting to stagnate now. We've kind of gotten to the point where people have worked out what works well and there's far less cause to keep moving the whole longer lower slacker paradigm forward and so for sure i think we've might have yeah i think we might have even nudged the barrier of gone too far in some cases maybe yeah but i think it's we've gotten to the point where we've kind of figured out what works there and that's I think a big part of what has sort of gotten the industry to start now messing around with mullets and high pivot bikes and a bunch of this other stuff that we kind of had the geometry was the last major frontier that they were working on for a bit. And now that that's a lot more squared away and a lot more stable, it's sort of freeing up time to think about and look at other stuff. Totally agree. Like I, you know, I'm a big moto fan. I kind of look at uh, the way the moto industry worked, and that that's kind of kind of similar with moto, uh, with like with dirt bikes. You know, by the by the late nineties, they really got the geo down. I think 
um, you know, you look at a, a late 90s YZ or whatever and it's pretty similar um, to nowadays. Uh, but once the Geo was was down, then they could start exploring, you know, EFI and four strokes and, you know, all that type of stuff. So, I definitely agree with your point there. To, to bring it back around to some of the other stuff that you've been working on, you mentioned the center hub but haven't really gone through what that is. How about you explain that one for us? For sure. So, um, it's a front hub. Uh, so, if front hubs aren't a new thing. Um, you know, Schwinn had one, I believe, way back in the 70s. Shimano had one way back then. So, they're not a new thing. A couple of companies are doing, doing them at the moment as well. Uh, but basically, the, the point of difference with the center hub and like, you know, I'll kind of go back a step, but I did that like I did that project as part of my engineering thesis back in 2016. Um, so, it was kind of funny why we were talking earlier, but why I had to come home from the US in 2016 was to finish off my uni degree because like you had to come home to at least one unit. I, re- I really didn't want to come home. Um, but anyway, it worked out well because, yeah, I ended up negotiating to, to be able to do my own project, which was at Center Hub. So, um, yeah, poured a fair bit of energy in, into it and uh, uh, with no point of arrogance or anything like that, but it, you know, it took really only a couple of weeks to make, um, but how to get it to a commercially viable product took years, like, you know, six years almost. So, um, you know, I think that's the that's the thing that a lot of people might be confused of just as a bit of a side note is like to make a product is easy, but depending on its complexity, but making a product is easy. Making it to where it's commercially viable is a whole nother ball game. Yeah, I've been there. Certainly making you can make one thing pretty easily, figuring out how to produce it at scale and do so in a way that's cost effective and so on gets a lot more complicated really quickly. And just to clarify for people who might not have quite caught it before. So basically what we're talking about here is moving the free hub from the rear hub to the cranks so that and I'll well, I'll let you take it from here on why. Yeah, yeah. So there there are a couple of advantages with that. Um well there's a lot actually and there's big advantages and then there's kind of smaller advantages I can go into a little bit but uh, and disadvantages of course too like anything it's a double-edged sword so by moving the the front well the, the hub to the front and locking out the rear uh, basically your, your chains rotate anytime your rear wheels rotating your chains rotating so you can change gears whenever you like um, you could be coasting you could be pedaling you could be back pedaling it also uh, eliminates your suspension forces from your pedals basically because if your back wheel, like if it's rotating and your chain's rotating uh, dependently, if you were to clock a rock or something and wants to slow down your wheel and traditionally you'd get uh, kickback, is that your chain would just slow down proportionate, proportionally. Um, so, they're the, sort of the two major effects. There's a couple of others like, you know, you basically got an extra gyroscope between your legs. So, at speed, it's definitely more stable. Uh, the big one that I don't think people, uh, and until they ride it, sort of notice is that if you can imagine um, whether you're on a road bike or a mountain bike or whatever, if you're coming around a corner so you're not pedaling and then you go to jump back on the pedals, you've got a lot of weight to get going again. So, you've got your cranks to get going again. You've got the whole drivetrain to get moving again. Whereas with this, all that's moving. So, when you go to jump back on the pedals, it's like you're chasing it, not the other way around. It's like when you jump back on the pedals, you're just straight back into it because everything's already moving at the speed that you need to catch. Um, Whereas the other way, it's like- Yeah, it's just less weight. You have to accelerate back up to speed now. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, So, with our our system, we use a Sprag clutch. Um, So, it's- Literally, no more friction than a than a normal ball bearing. Um, so it, it rotates super freely um, because the 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 point on that is, well, before I go to that, so and a spray clutch, so spray clutch is instant engagement too. So there's zero lag, like it's just on or off. Um, and a lot of people, when I first saw a spray clutch, uh, was back in the BMX days. And I didn't believe people. I was like, nah, bullshit. Like there needs to be some type of lag, but a good Sprague clutch is just, yeah, I can't describe it well enough. Like it's on or it's off um, and it's totally silent. So, which is in my, like I love it. I, I reckon it's unreal. Um, you can hear and feel everything. Um, 
kind of less chain slap too because it's always pulling stuff in tension. But yeah, what I was going to say is with a front hub, and this is this was largely what my thesis is on. If you just pulled the pawl and spring out of your rear hub and just put it in your cranks, is that you've got a net increase of friction because your chain's having to now rotate all the time. So basically, what you want to do is, if you to do a front hub system, is you need to run a clutch. Uh, that's got less friction than what you'd normally have in your rear wheel to to balance out that net effect, if you know what I mean. Um, so that's why that's why mainly why I chose Sprag clutch because you do always have your chain rolling. So uh, there might be times, say, like if it's a really, really, really muddy race. Well, this takes me to the next point too that I kind of forgot is that I wanted to make my system fully modular so it would adapt to any crank, which it which it does. So any direct mount crank. So it means that they're like it's literally two seconds if you want to take it off and swap it just to a normal drivetrain, um, and I think that is really really important because there might be certain tracks or certain races depending on the the environment where it might be better off to just run a normal system. Um, if it's super super muddy and your chain's always rotating. It could draw mud in and you could just have a shitload of friction to the point where, yeah, it's isolating. You can, like the suspension, you can change gears whenever you want. But the extra friction it's adding, you might as well just run a, a normal system. Likewise, if it's a super, super flat track where rolling friction is everything, then it would be better off with a standard system. Um, but any marginally steep uh, enduro track, downhill whatever it's absolutely kind of the way to go so i wanted it yeah i wanted it modular so you could swap that out and then how are you handling locking out the rear hub to go for this whole portion of the program so there's a couple of different ways the easiest way is you can just basically zip tie the cassette to the to the um to the spoke which is super easy you can do it on any wheel i don't really like it because it doesn't look clean but it, it works totally fine that's what i do on my on my road bike. I suppose you'd be putting almost no load through that, right? Because it's just enough to keep the chain moving and that's about it. So, Well, yeah, there's, there's literally zero load through it because your pawls in the rear wheel are engaged. Yeah. So, right. they're they're taking all the load still. The zip tie is just limiting it from slipping. Yeah. The only reason I did it on my road bike was because it's it's got like a pawl and spring clutch. So, to lock it out, it's kind of harder. Um, but we make little adapters. Oh, I should have got one. But we just make little adapters like they're tiny for DT Swiss hubs. So basically, the DT Swiss ratchet, you just take that out, plonk the spacer in, and it's done. Like takes like two seconds, um, and that's the cleanest way. So in our kit, uh, yeah, in our kit, every kit comes with a DT Swiss lockout. That makes sense. Yeah, just replacing the star ratchet with a solid version of the same. Sure. Basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's get into the Trinity DH bike that you have just started showing on social media because there is a lot going on there that is extremely interesting. Where do we start? So basically, well, I'll give you the whole sort of background of, of the Trinity thing. And just as a side note too, like, you know, down the track or whatever, if you ever want to do uh, a podcast with all three of us that are involved, you know, we'd be more than happy to do that as well. Cause yeah, we all, we all bring different strengths to the project, but basically how this started was that Chase Warner, who lives in, who lives in California, uh, this has been his baby for many, many, many years. Um, he'd done all the CAD designs, whatever, or, you know, a lot of the preliminary CAD designs. And then he'd hit up my friend Nigel Petrie, who owns Engineer to Slide, about actually manufacturing it. Uh, and I'm, I'm in the factory next door to Nigel. Uh, so, wind back the clock about 12 months ago now, they uh, were um, – they were kind of throwing around ideas about how to how to manufacture it. So Nigel had had contacted me saying, "Hey, we've got this bike that we want to we want to make." Like at this stage, you know, I was making yokes and and that type of stuff, uh, and obviously we're pretty pretty experienced, just kind of in the bike scene. So I came in just to kind of uh, uh, I think I was in a meeting with both of them. But, yeah, just kind of going over the bikes like, you know, do you reckon we need bigger bearings here or this or that or the rest of it? Kind of gave my, my two cents and then they'd asked whether I wanted to come on uh, kind of as a third person to the to the project and, and to the Trinity kind of company, uh, which, yeah, I was kind of, kind of stoked on. So, 
then it was just kind of spitballing ideas like, you know, how do we actually make this thing a reality? And then it pretty well just existed on paper. And then we got an invite to the Handmade Bike Show, which is a big, well, it's, it's mainly for road cyclists, but, um, well, I shouldn't say it's mainly for road cyclists. That's just the demographic that normally goes. Uh, we got an invite to that in, I don't know what it would have been, maybe April. I think it was in May. But anyway, we got an invite only like three or four weeks out. And, uh, you know, we'd had this thing drawn up on paper in CAD pretty much. And uh, we were like, screw it. We'll, uh, we'll pull the trigger. It gives us a deadline. Let's see if we can we can make it. So, uh, yeah, built it all up, uh, took it to the handmade show. And then it was kind of a real thing. And obviously, it got posted on social media and then a little bit like the WRP stuff. Um, you know, I guess it just kind of took off. Um, and then we were like, shit, it's got a lot of traction. We might as well keep going with this. And like any good project, I think it's evolved kind of naturally in regards to, you know, we never had we never had the, the idea of making this gearbox that I've made. Um, that just kind of came naturally, I guess, because I was sitting here too late at night looking at the bike and, you know, I've always been a big fan of the RN01, the Honda. And then kind of originally how this bike came about was that uh, Chase had been hit up by a, a gearbox company because they wanted, they'd seen his uh, preliminary designs and whatever and, and wanted a, a basically a mule to put their gearbox in. And then uh, it's not talking bad on any of the gearbox companies at all, but the current gearboxes on the market, they're just, they're no good. I hate to say, but like as far as like from an efficiency point of view, if you've got backward, backwards rotating gears in that box, like you've just got efficiency going out the window, um, you know, you sit in an oil bath, so you've got to rotate those things through oil all the time. They've got a really low engagement, so you've got like a lot of slack to take it up. They're super, super heavy. So, I was just off the gearbox idea um, and our bike still accommodates a normal gearbox whether it's pinion or an effie gear or whatever. So, like, you know, one of them can bolt straight in because they are a good unit. I mean, they're fully sealed, like, you know, they're red, they're plug and play. You can get it and bolt it straight in. They're very they're very good. Um, but from an engineering point of view, I think that they can be a lot better. Um, it's really just to make them any better, you need more room. I think Honda hit the nail on the head, but obviously it was just, it was a huge compartment uh, that they had to make a frame around. And then, yeah, like I said, I was just kind of staring at the Trinity one night and uh, rang up the CAD model, downloaded some models of cassettes and derailers and stuff and just started overlaying shit. Um, and it looked like it was going to check out. So, yeah, I was actually kind of lucky that the way that we made the frame just geometrically got really close to being able to um, just, yeah, strap some tabs in and whatever and, and make that work. So this is amazing. I actually didn't realize that the addition of the sort of wild drivetrain that's on there now was not how it was originally mocked up. But so to circle back for the f people who've not seen this, basically what they've got going is a drivetrain very similar to the original Honda DH bike from way back in the day where you've got little mini chain coming up from the left side of the cranks, cranks on kind of on backwards, and then a cassette and derailleur mounted in the middle of the front triangle with a shaft going across to bring the drive over to the actual drive side. And then from there, second chain going back to the rear wheel. And uh, we'll put some photos of this up in the show notes alongside so you can take a look and see and throw links up to the Instagram too, where you can get a bunch more photos of this, but yeah, basically it's a quote unquote gearbox just comprised of a cassette and derailleur, but stuck into the middle of the frame so that you don't have the derailleur hanging off the back of the rear wheel. You lose some unsprung weight because you don't have the cassette and derailleur again off on the wheel where they're now they're counting as unsprung weight. And then all of this is coupled with the, center hub so you can shift it whenever you want even when you're coasting and so on it's a pretty slick little setup 
It's pretty mean. And I, like, you know, my point about the center hub before is like, you don't have to run this with the center hub. It's just if you want to, you know, it's modular. Like, it adapts to any crank. So you can just whack, whack the center hub in if you want. Um, the other thing that I should note too is it's all SRAM access stuff. So it's all electronic. Um, I'll never go back to a cable derailleur again. Like, yeah, access is pretty wild. Um, uh, and the other thing that I should note too is that, um, by having the derailleur mounted on the mainframe, traditionally with your derailleur, obviously your derailleur's got an indexing cog and it's also got a tensioner cog because it's got to account for your suspension moving. Whereas now because it's on the mainframe, all of that's static. So you're uh, basically all that it's doing is indexing. Like it's taking up the tension of the chain moving between the large cog and the small cog but the clutch isn't getting moved at all to take up the account of the chain growth with the suspension moving. So as far as shifting and whatever, it's super, super crisp because you're not, yeah, you're not taking up all that slack of the chain through your suspension movement. That makes sense. And you're not fighting the clutch to, in order to move the suspension. So I'd imagine you had a little bit of an improvement there too in terms of suspension performance. That's exactly correct. People keep going on about the weight too. And I actually haven't, I like on my Instagram comments, I haven't actually measured the weight, but like it's bugger all because all you're adding is an extra half a chain and uh, one single speed so, uh, sprocket and a jack shaft and that's it. Like it'll be, I'll take a stab at the dark, I don't know, but it'll be easily under a kilo, put it that way. Like it's, it's bugger all extra weight and the weight that it is added is like you were saying, it's on the sprung body. So, dynamically it'll actually feel lighter yep that all checks out and it looks pretty cool i've ever since honda did that bike what 15 years ago now i've been kind of wanting to see a new version of it and uh here we are i don't know i don't know how they didn't change the world like i you know i've talked about it with a good mate of mine dave pavich and um He's real, like, you know, he picks apart a lot of my ideas because he's been around the around the bike scene for so long and whatever, and he's a great mechanic. So, like, you know, if I do something stupid, he'll be like, dude, you know, do that. <laughs> oh, thanks, man. Um, but, yeah, we were having this discussion a while ago, and he's like, how did Honda not change the world? Like, No, the idea makes just absolutely perfect sense to me. And, you know, of course, we've never gotten to ride one, obviously, but uh sure seems like a good idea on paper. And, uh yeah. One thing I was wondering about this, I would imagine that there are some limits to how many speeds you can stuff in there just because the run of chain that you've got between the crank and the cassette's really short. And so just for chain line reasons, you probably can't, you'd probably have a hard time putting like a full 12 speed trail bike drivetrain in there. Is that fair to say? Yeah. So uh, for people wondering is that the we've got a six speed on it at the moment and it's just the bottom half of an Eagle cassette. So yeah, it's it's real close range. It's snappy. It's just like a it's like a mini block basically, just without the the twenty five um, or the twenty eight or whatever they run. Um, yeah, basically just a mini block without the the highest um, cog. Um, I don't want to give too much away at the moment, just because it's kind of under wraps. But we have got an idea to basically double the range while using exactly this current setup. Um, so make it a twelve speed. Uh, but visually it'll look identical. So, Well, that's a, a good teaser for something for us to stay tuned for on the bike and really looking forward to seeing where this goes from here. I guess one other thing I wanted to go th- through that you've been up to recently is just announced the privateer parts program. So can you tell us what the idea behind that is and what the story was there? For sure, dude. So um it was something that I actually wanted to do last year. So, like, this time last year, I wanted to do it for the 2021 season. Um, but, like, obviously, I was pretty, as far as from a company standpoint, like, the company was very fresh. Um, you know, I really didn't have uh, the money to put behind it for that type of program. Um, and also, the, the season was a little bit weird because of COVID and whatever. Um but basically, yeah, the idea behind it is, uh, I think the name's sort of pretty self-explanatory, but a privateer parts program. So, uh, offer a select few privateers that are on the World Cup or EWS circuit, you know, or given racing at that crack, at that level, a good crack. So, you know, it could be Crankworks or 
you know, whatever. But um, you know, they're in the elite or junior categories that are that are really having a having a go at it. And the people that I really want to help, are quote unquote, kind of the the blue collar athletes. So uh, people who like I was a couple of years ago. So you know, you, you're working a couple of jobs in the off season, just saving money so you can blow it all going racing again. Um, because like that shit's hard, man. Like it's it's really really hard, and I don't think people appreciate actually how hard it is. Um, you know, the sport at the moment is at a level that's so high, um, and the the cream of the crop guys are so so fast, um, and also like the regs that that the UCI are putting into just kind of make it really really difficult for the privateers to have a good crack and it be worth their money. And I think like on a separate note, I think that's why a lot of people are going to EWS, but um, the whole point of it was to kind of give a support network to, uh, yeah, privateer riders to help them to help them do good in the season, and not just like financially or whatever, but um, basically through custom parts. So you see the syndicate or specialized gravity racing or whatever, you know, they have custom links or you know custom stem or whatever it would need to be just to dial that bike in for them. Um, whereas the privateers, like, they can only get what they can get off the shelf and a lot of the time without sort of support, they don't necessarily have the money to go buy it because all their money is going into buying a plane ticket. Um, so, yeah, the privateer parts program is really to offer uh, factory spec equipment to privateers that are having a crack. So, if they're like, shit, you know, you look at the syndicate, say, and they've got um, just – I'm just using this example just totally hypothetically, but just say the, the syndicate's got a, a, a link or whatever to increase progression. And the syndicates are the syndicates on that and someone else, like privateer's got a V10, same model, whatever, who's like, shit, I reckon I could pull out a couple of seconds out of this track if I had a more progressive link. You know, then that's where we'd come in and, and help support that. So, yeah, that's kind of where where I want it to go. And it doesn't have to be links. It could be anything. I mean, Greg Minar ran those longer, those longer dropouts on his V10. It could be something like that, you know, just to kind of uh, help the privateers keep up with those factory guys. Cause yeah, the gap, the gap between the two is just getting larger and larger and larger. And a lot of it's to do with, to do with money and support. So, um, you know, I've been there. It's, it's hard shit to do. So. This is great. I just love the idea of, having this resource out there and encouraging more privateers to just be getting after it and finding a way to make it easier on those guys. So I think half the thing is too, like, um, you know, we're kind of seeing a bit of a, a drop away from kind of like the, um, you know, like I said, sort of the, the world cup stuff. I mean, you know, obviously they've dropped the qualification numbers. Um, you see less privateers going to race those World Cup, particularly from Australia or the Southern Hemisphere because it's so far and expensive to get to. But I almost feel as though like, and this is going out on a limb and I could be totally incorrect here, but I almost think like if there's a company like WIP sort of supporting those privateers to go have a good crack, it might sort of change the culture of the UCI a little bit. Like you push it, push back at it, you know, and, and kind of help support these privateers. I'd love to see it. And, you know, frankly, <laughs> you'd know better than I do having been there, you know, but I think there is something to that and really just excited to see where it goes. I think like psychologically to like for the privateers, even if it's as simple as like a custom stem, you know, knowing that they've got a little bit of support kind of psychologically just gives them a bit of a confidence boost too that they're, that they're, in the right place or doing it for the right reasons because like it's fucking tough man like if you're over there giving it a crack and you've got zero support and these guys are like on full factory team uh a lot of time you're like oh like am i way out of my depth or whatever whereas you know even just a little bit of backing from a company to, to help you in the smallest way just might give you that even if it's a confidence boost just to get you moving last episode bikes and big ideas last week we had uh jordy cortez from fox on and one of the things he was talking about a bunch that i think kind of is a sort of other side of that coin or something is just how much his job is sort of both getting everyone's suspension set up really well but also just dealing with the mental aspects of racing and having the all of these 
athletes who are saying, oh, I'm not feeling great on this course. Like, what if I change this or that? And and oftentimes having to be like, well, no, I don't think that makes sense or navigate just the feeling confident in their bike setups, even if what they've already got is perhaps objectively the fastest that it could be, you know, but just by twisting knobs or whatever. And uh, it makes sense. You know, you, you it's this very interesting kind of interplay of both actual technical things trying to find speed, but the pilot on it's a huge part of the whole program too. And you, you just need to feel comfortable and confident in what you're on in order to perform well, whether or not it's really literally objectively faster or not, just the, the mental side of it's very real. Yeah. And like, you know, it, it is going down a little bit of a rabbit hole, but I think like, you know, for guys, particularly sort of from the Southern Hemisphere, like Australia, New Zealand, and then even guys from the States as well, going over to Europe to race, like it's a huge, it's a whole nother level because it's like, well, li- from a logistic side, like as a privateer, from a logistic side of it, you've got to arrange, you know, flying there, you've got to arrange a car, you've got to arrange accommodation, like all of this stuff, you've got so much on your plate that like the one little one percenters mean so much at that time. Um, so, yeah, if we can if we can help out with that and like, you know, from a personal point of view, like and a heap of people would say the same, like a heap of people sort of at a similar kind of level as, as that, like, um, you know, I never raced to my potential at any of those races because there was so much stuff that you've got to, look after you know um so yeah if if we can support that in any way even if it's just having a backup part like you know i've got two stems so if i break one i'll spare and so if anyone listening to this feels like that they might qualify and have something that they're interested in how would they uh get in touch with you about this one yeah for sure so if you go to the wrp website which is williamsracingproducts.com it's like stands out right there like on the left hand side um you know you've got like you know home parts store whatever there's just a big bold writing privateer parts uh privateer parts program and then basically it's just a fill out form uh so yeah you you whack in sort of who you are where you're from what you want to achieve and what sort of parts you need um yeah fill it out send it through it'll come straight through to me um and we'll have a look like you know, like I was saying, like we are an extremely small company, so I don't have the ability to, to help everyone and also kind of in a different way too. You know, there, there might be someone I really want to help, but it's a little bit out of our league or might be conflict of interest or something like that. But but certainly I want to do my best at, at helping all the people we can. Um, and, you know, it'll be, it'll be costing, it'll be costing us money, but it's something that I really, really, really want to do. Good on you for that. I I love it. And you don't need to uh, give away too much here if, if you don't want to. But out of curiosity, have there been any particularly interesting things that have come in so far? You can talk about them in broad strokes if that's better. Yeah, I mean we've we've had uh, we've had a lot of people apply. Um, you know, a lot of people from a very broad demographic too, which is which is good. One thing that I will say is that. Um, I'm not saying just through the property parts program, but I'm just saying just in general, like with emails or whatever, is that I guess um, I'll reiterate, like, you know, I we are a very sort of small company. I'm doing this kind of out of passion, like giving specific requirements is really important, um, not necessarily a shopping list of parts, you know, because I don't have the ability to, to help out with a shopping list worth of parts, um, but more so specific stuff. So, like, yep, my V10 just isn't ramping enough. And I know because I've tested on a broad range of, broad range of tracks and it's just not progressive enough. I'm bottoming out, whatever. It's costing me time. Then, you know, we can help with that type of stuff. And the biggest stuff really, and this is kind of what we're looking for as well, to, to, to build the brand and sort of to, um, to build the communication between athletes and ourselves is that uh, athlete feedback is really important. So, you know, I'm not saying necessarily just through the privateer parts program, but I've had a couple of people just hit me up and be like, my bike feels like shit, help me. And I'm like, you know, unless we strap data analytics all over that thing, then it's just going to be really hard to solve. So, and that's kind of why I'm looking for guys at that level who are like knocking on the door of those top top guys that just need that little edge that can say, yep, to be as simple as like, dude, I need like a 
44 mil stem. Like I've tried a 50, I've tried a 44. They're both wrong at either end of the spectrum. I just want something in the middle that like matches my offset or like whatever. And we can bang that out. Or like I said, yeah, custom dropouts or custom link or, you know, something in the realm that can help. But I think that's probably the most important thing is, um, yeah, be, be specific about what you, what you need and what you want that bike to achieve. Um, if it's a shopping list, then particularly virtually, that's pretty hard to, to accommodate. Yeah. Specific feedback, I'm sure, makes it a whole lot easier. And, and people like Geordie would say the same. Oh, he, he certainly did. Yeah. <laughs> if you rocked up and been like, my Fox 40 feels like shit, tell me more. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that was another big part of that conversation with Geordie is just about trying to figure out and with in his case too you know he's working with so many different people on a given weekend right you've got 50 riders coming through the tent or whatever and having to have a rapport with all of these different people and knowing how they communicate and being able to just bang through it quickly with good clear feedback is critical for him to do his job and it's tough and well i guess on the the note of custom stems too those are another thing you've got up on the website that people can just go place an order for and uh we're talking both uh, traditional clamp stems for a single crown fork and direct mounts for a dual crown. And you can do custom lengths in one millimeter increments and a variety of rise options and whatnot. And uh, so if anyone is listening to this being like, man, that that guy who's looking for the 47 millimeter stem sounds like me. Here it is. And frankly, I'm pretty excited about this one. The, the application for me personally is that uh, I've got a bike kind of long travel burly enduro bike that I do switch back and forth between running a single crown and dual crown on a bit, depending on what I'm doing and um, just trying to get the cockpit set up feeling the same between the two has, has proven to be a challenge. I've got the single crown version worked out really well and haven't quite got the dual crown uh, direct mount stem and everything to, to match it. And so this is exactly perfect. If you don't mind me asking, if you don't mind me asking, is the offset on both the forks the same? Were they different? Uh, really close. It's uh, let's see, it is off by two millimeters. Two mil. Yeah, if you got forty four and a forty six. Yep. Do you know what your stem lengths are? Forty, and I've tried a few different things. Uh, forty for the uh, single crown that is, and I've tried a couple different things on the dual crown. Currently at forty four, but. It's not quite right yet. Um, um, yeah, I've got an intern at the moment who uh, I think I can give this away. Yeah, fuck it, I'll give it away. I haven't, I haven't really given it away yet, but I'll give it away. Um, but yeah, basically, we're working on like uh, basically a mathematical formula on stem lengths and all that type of type of stuff to basically so it'll be in the back end of that stem builder program because. Some people, like I said, some people know exactly what they want. So, they'll hit me up and be like, I want a 44 with zero rise and a stack of 30 mil. Easy. Whereas a lot of people will be like, I want a custom stem. My cockpit doesn't feel right. I don't know why. And basically, what we want to be able to do is build an algorithm that gives a ballpark figure for, you know, the average rider. So, you can put in a couple of dimensions. So, you know, you can put in your fork offset. You can put in your style of riding, blah, 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 blah put that in and it'll pop out and give you a recommendation. So, we recommend that you run 40 mil, 44 mil stem, this, whatever. If you'd like to proceed, you know, click submit. Because um, I think that would be real powerful to uh, to limit the, the mess around. Um, but yeah. Okay, that's very interesting. I, and I guess, not to get too far off in the weeds here, but since you were asking about offset, what how do you think about stem length in relation to offset and what's sort of the... Uh, the correlation there? Well, yeah. How do you think about that relationship? Yeah, I think it's super important. It didn't really... Like a lot of things, I guess, like I kind of... I learned by doing it rather than just theory. Um, and the more and more and more stems that I've built, and I should say, like, we've got a... You know, I bought on a young lad who's an engineer to... Um, to specifically design custom stems because I love doing them and I still will do um, a lot of them, but, you know, I can't keep up with the backlog because people seem to love them as well. So, um, he's he's designing some custom stems for me, um, which is great. He's a, he's a really good designer. 
uh, he's a great bike rider too. So that's that's all well and good. But the more and more and more that I've designed and built, I think there's a very very strong relationship between fork offset and stem length. Um, I did a little explanation. Uh, I've done a little explanation previously, but. Yeah, there's a few things going on and even like your bar roll and all that comes into play here because if you were to be looking like down through the steerer, I think it's really important that your bar line, basically if you drew a straight line between where you grip the bars, that that line should pass straight across the top of your steerer, like straight through the top gap. Because I think then when you tug on the bar that that force is going straight through like it's acting perpendicular straight through the middle of your of your steerer and i think the reason why your offset and your stem length are so important um, is that when you turn is that the arc of your where your bar is where your stem is grabbing your bar and the arc of where your fork grabs your axle like they're looking through the steerer they're right above and below each other so they're when you turn their radius is exactly the same. You know, if you're looking straight down through the steerer and you turn, yeah, your your stem and your and your axle are rotating about exactly the same axis, or not about the same axis. They're they're rotating the same radius amount. So there is no favour to oversteer or understeer. So typically, if you've got a shorter stem, so if you're if then at that case the radius that it turns is less than your axle, is you've got understeer. Whereas if you've got a longer stem and that radius is further than your axle, you've typically got oversteer. And then that relates into the whole trail, like offset versus trail thing, which is a whole nother sort of conversation. I can go down that track. But basically, you know, kind of got about it the wrong way. But if you were to like work out all your trail stuff and then bring that back to how your stem relates to your offset and, you know, inversely, yeah, well, um, sorry, more directly, yeah, your trail and, and all that. But basically I think that's why stem offset and uh, or stem length and, and axle offset so important because they follow that same radius. So you've got – and, like, this is the thing. Like, depending on your riding style, you might actually prefer a little bit of oversteer or you might prefer understeer. So in that case, you might bring the stem back a little bit or bring it forward a little bit to actually – you know, counteract that. But if you want a totally neutral feeling is that, yeah, you'd have your, so if you've got a 44 mil stem with a 44 mil offset, they're both sitting above and below each other. So they're following the same radius as your turn. And then your bars would have 44 mil of back sweep in them. So when you're hanging on to your bars, if you drew a straight line between, it would keep going right above your steering cap. So that's for a totally neutral steering that's very interesting i think i have arrived at something not unlike that and for my personal preferences just sort of experimentally but hadn't hadn't thought through too clearly exactly why that was what what worked but well i was i was kind of the same dude like i it took me actually kind of sort of thinking about it and then writing it and verifying how it felt with the theory and being like, yeah, there's, there's actually something to this. I'm going to need to mull over that one a little bit more, but I think you're onto something there. Again, like I, I'm not claiming that I have – I'm not holding the, the answers to all wisdom. Um, like, you know, this is an ever-evolving thing. But like as it, as it sort of currently stands, that's what I – that's what we're kind of working on. I think there's something to that. Well, Mick, this has been super fun and I'm sure we could keep going on for ages, but I should let you get back to it soon here. Before I let you go, and this question, frankly, feels unfair, given that the uh, pretty much the entirety of this episode has been your big ideas, but the podcast is called Bikes and Big Ideas after all. So, do you have, I guess, one last big idea to share with us? <laughs> I don't know. That, that, that question's kind of stumped me. I guess it depends on uh, you know, on what realm we're talking about, whether we're just bikes or whether we, we want to go down. Anything you want. Absolutely anything goes. No, I'll keep it down the narrative of this potty. My my next big idea my my next big idea is uh is making some nice carbon triads for this gearbox. We won't get into we won't get into politics just yet. <laughs> Fair enough. We'll we'll save that for the next episode. <laughs>
when when we've got the other two Trinity boys to bring me back on track. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Well, we'll uh, yeah, we'll pencil that one in and be in touch. But thanks again, Mick. This has been a lot of fun and a lot of really cool stuff you're up to over there. So thanks for talking us through it. Thanks, man. Appreciate the kind words. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas, and if you enjoyed this conversation, then please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Mick for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everyone else, and we will talk to you again real soon. <laughs>